Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Welcome to today's very, very special show. We are honored to be joined by a journalist from Underground News who is perpetually in trouble. Alhamdulillah, it's my honor to introduce Brother Bilal Abdul Karim. Assalamu alaikum, Bilal. Wa alaikum, assalamu Welcome. How are you today? Well, uh, Alhamdulillah, good. Very good. Very good. MashaAllah. Excellent, excellent. Uh, and we have Brother Kaleem as well, our regular. Today's show is about the recent chemical attacks on Idlib, the recent follow-up to that by the Trump administration, and we're going to be discussing the kill list as well that Brother Bilal has been placed on recently. So let's quickly just establish a timeline. What were the chain of events, Bilal? What exactly happened? You're speaking in reference to the uh, sarin gas attack, is that correct? That's right. So the sarin gas attacks, and then we had Trump authorized those airstrikes as well? Well, firstly, the gas tax took place on April 4th. It was an area called Khan Sheikhoun. Now, Khan Sheikhoun is not a battlefront. In other words, there's no active battlefront that's going on there right now. Uh, it was an area some time ago was occupied by some ISIS loyalists and such like that, but they had since been, been pushed out. So it's a town where you have just you know, normal people, just like um, you know, any other place. And it was hit by, originally it was a known type of agent it was that the people were hit with. They, had, um, they were pouring into the hospitals with um, pit-sized pupils, unresponsive, and it was not a chlorine attack because we've been accustomed to chlorine attacks before. The people literally come into the hospital smelling like they had just stepped out of a swimming pool. But this was different. The symptoms were different, and the patients were responding to, you know, uh, medication for a nerve agent. That's when they started to say, hey, this is something else. This looks like a sarin attack. Medical officials have also labeled it a sarin attack because some of the cases had gone across the border into Turkey and an opportunity to perform autopsies on some of the bodies. The numbers are 90, uh, no, I'm sorry, it has grown to 102 dead, more than 300 injured. So this is what place. What was the international reaction to that? Well, the international reaction was one of uh, shock and horror. Um, one of the interesting things is that when I heard about the actual story, there's sometimes, I mean, after being here for five years, I'm not sure if your listeners would be able to understand this, but if someone were to come in and say, oh, uh, you know, some people w were shot and killed just a few kilometers away, people would say, oh my goodness, let's go down and let's see what happened in the news and I mean, that's not really the situation here because uh, this is, these are things that happen all the time. So I was kind of, when I was informed about it, I was kind of like, mm, yeah, all right, we'll go check it out. Just like that. No one had any idea this would become an international story. Why? Because this happens all the time. People were, were shocked and outraged, and I was like, well, where were you? Uh, we just covered another a, a, a chlorine attack where five people were killed. Just in a week, um, in a week, I'd say about eight or nine days just before the sarin gas attack. So I was like, well, 
I mean, why was that such a big story? And the other ones that had been killing, I mean, that's what had been killing people by chemical attacks all along. I mean, this happens about two or three times a month. I said two or three times a month, every month around the country. So it, it, this, we were surprised that the international community was surprised. And, and why do you think that is? Why do you think that this attack, as opposed to the other ones, has been taken up as a cause? Because I've heard some thoughts and some theories, and maybe I'll posit them to you later, but I'd like to get your thoughts first. Uh, well, firstly, the, the death toll was, was higher this time. So um, I could say that that's probably more than likely uh, in my estimation, the contributive factor, the main factor, because the death toll was much higher. After just, having just out, said that, just out of interest, about how much we've—I think I've heard figures of over two hundred. Is that is that accurate? Is that correct? Over two hundred dead. Subhanallah. Because we have one hundred and two dead, and more than three hundred injured. Subhanallah. Subhanallah. So as, as for why it, it uh, got the international attention, I, I remember when I was in, in Aleppo and there was this young man, uh, Daknish, I forgot his first name, and he was this iconic photo of this little boy in the ambulance and he was all covered with ash and powder from his house being destroyed and this went viral around the world. Well, I kind of looked at this picture and I said, yeah, this is an iconic photo, but how many little duck niches are there every single day? So I can't tell you why certain stories uh, catch fire and other ones don't. I, I can tell you that. So one of the things that uh, this is obviously drawn out, and we'll talk about that more later, is the fact that America have for the first time attacked a government airbase. Now, they gave warning to the airbase and to the Russians before they did that. And so there wasn't very severe damage to that. But it's raised a point from some of the government supporters that, look, the rebels are basically, and they've been saying this all along, the, the rebels are, are working hand in glove with America. America are supplying them with arms, supplying them with, with money and um that even now we've seen Israel making some moves against uh, pro-government positions. And so therefore, all of the rebels are, are delegitimized by this outside interference. And obviously, there's always issues about sort of which groups are in alliance with which groups, Jabhat al-Nusra or their current name, whichever they're going under, are they aligned with this group or that group and which ones have worked with and haven't worked with ISIS at various times. How... For somebody outside of Syria, are they meant to sort of make any sense of all of the different players and all of the different interests going on within Syria? Because there are so many and they're so varied. Well, the first thing is that, yes, you'll, there'll be some acid uh, loyalists who will try to make a claim that they are um, delegitimized, etc., etc. But then the reality has to come to light. Okay, everybody. Let's grow up. Let's be adults here. There's a certain reality we have to look at. If you have a murderer who is running around town and running around town killing people, uh, you might have the drug gang that might tip the police off that, and, and you might have uh, other residents who tip the police off. 
you might have a lot of people who have an interest in seeing this murderer or this rapist to be caught. That doesn't necessarily mean now that the police and the drug gangs are working together. It doesn't mean that. You know, we've got more than half a million people dead, and that's an estimate that's two and a half years old. And, I mean, it's natural that people would want to see that the mechanism that engineered all of these killings would be stopped. And to make the assumption that, oh, well, that means that they're all working together again is somebody that's clutching at straws to think that because the rebels want to take down Essid and because America wants to take down Essid means that they're all one entity and one in the same. And the only way that they can have legitimacy is if they side with Essid. No, I'm, I'm sorry. That argument is just not, I don't see it that way. I want to ask, Bilal, I mean, obviously we have very limited information about what's been going on. Is there any other kind of events that we should be aware of within what's happening? Because at the moment we've seen the sarin gas attack and then we've seen Trump call this strike. Is there anything else that can help put into context for us what's going on? Well, I think we have to look at the nature of the Trump administration's intervention. Okay, firstly, let's take a look at something now. Uh, some people may sit and say, hey, you know, Trump is trying to do something give of lots of people. Trump is trying to do something, give him a chance. All right. First of all, let's examine what the U.S. administration is slash is not doing. Now, just Jeff Davis, who is the spokesman for the uh, Pentagon for the U.S. forces, made clear in a press release where he made mention that this was a proportionate response, listen to what I'm saying now, a proportionate response to the barbaric acts which were carried out by the Essen government, or as he said it, the key word here, I'm paraphrasing it basically, but the key word he did use is proportionate response. Now let's talk about a proportionate response for a minute. According to the Syrian government, as a result of the airstrikes, there was Six killed, six injured. How does that equal? It equals 12. So if you've got 12 people who were killed and look at the other side of the divide, now keep in mind these are 12 people at a military installation, 12 casualties. If you look at the streets of Khan Sheikhoun, 102 dead, over 300 injured, that's more than 400 people. How does 12 casualties equal 400? I don't understand how it's a proportionate response, which is the first thing. The second thing is that they're warning the Russian government of their impending attack. Well, that, I mean, that kind of defeats the purpose. I mean, the first thing is, is that you've given the perpetrators an opportunity to run away. Second, you gave the perpetrators an opportunity to take their remaining sarin gas with them. So... I'm not clear exactly what the goals of this strike actually were. If we're going to take what they said that this was a proportionate response, it didn't happen. Because when you look at the runways, I mean, Khan Sheikhoun was bombed again yesterday. So where do you think that these are taking off from the same base? So it's not clear to me exactly what the U.S. administration is doing. Actually, I think it's not clear to the U.S. administration what they're doing. 
one thing I've heard on this, which I'd like to get your take on, is that in the light of the allegations recently against Trump and to possible collusion with Russia, that he was looking at this as an opportunity to be seen to be tough against them, to be seen to be taking action against the Russians, while in actual fact really doing very, very little. So it was a kind of no harm, no foul bark at the Russians. What's your take on those sorts of thoughts? Well, as we saw, you know, how effective was the strike? I mean, it was ineffective. I mean, if we're going to talk about 12 casualties, it took 59 Tomahawk missiles. A Tomahawk missile is about 20 feet long. Um, I guess for you metric system types, that's about, what, six and a half meters, something like that. <laughs> um, and it carries a 1,000-pound warhead. And you shot 59 of those. You know, I'm not a mathematician, but I, I mean, how many? That's about, that's almost 10 for each person killed, that's about 10 Tomahawk missiles. Are you serious? I mean, is, is, is that what it takes for a Tomahawk missile? You know, was this an opportunity for him to look like he's tough on Russia? I can't really speak about his intention. Only Allah knows what his intention is. But let's just say that I think that there are a lot of people around the world that are not fooled. He even put forward a tweet today that made mention you didn't really bother the runways because runways can be easily repaired. Well, that means that these criticisms are reaching him and the foolish, you know, ineffective, I guess would be the word for it, act that he put forward, you know, I, I think that he's, he's hearing that you know, not a lot of people are really convinced by his actions. I think, um, you know, from what you were saying, Muslim Beg made a really good point, actually, that the Americans normally get more people than that by accident. And it sounds like that's the case. It sounds like, from what you're saying, that this kind of payoff, if that's the word or the phrase that you want to use, is just not in keeping with the types of strikes that are going on. <laughs> a man with 59 grenades and an angry dog can get more casualties than that. I mean, <laughs> and you're talking about Tomahawk missiles? Ah, oh, come on, guys. What are, we, what are we doing here? Let, let, let's be for real. What about, we wanted to talk about American intervention as a, as a whole, right? So the other thing that we're seeing here, and maybe Khalid can maybe go in a bit more detail about this as well, I think, is we're seeing that uh, a lot of people are coming out and saying, actually, it's a good thing that America is now becoming involved in targeting pro-government installations or bases. Some people are not quite sure. So even today I was scrolling through my Facebook and brothers and sisters even are asking what's going on and how should we feel about American intervention? So it's very easy for us to make judgments. How is it on the ground? What are your feelings towards American intervention? Well, if you look at the countries America has intervened in, Somalia, Afghanistan, Iraq, where are the success stories? I know people are emotional and it's like, they, you know, they're feeling that, yeah, this is a good thing, that he's, he's hit Bashar al-Assad, teach him a lesson, etc., etc. But if you look at the countries where the U.S. gets involved, we're not seeing any success stories. So why are we assuming there's going to be a success story here? 
because America does not have friends. America has interests, just like any other country. They have interests, not necessarily intervening because it's the right thing to do. Because if that was the case, why did Trump wait until a sarin gas attack? I mean, this is the thing, once again, that's surprising us. When he came into office just about 10 days ago, his, the U.S. ambassador, Nikki Haley, to the U.N., was saying that we are not pushing, is that that's not a priority. Regime change is not a priority right now. Um, Rex Tillerson, which is the Secretary of State, was alluding to the exact same thing when he was in Turkey meeting with officials. And then all of a sudden, after this sarin gas attack, the U.S. administration going in the opposite direction. But my question is, what changed for them? They've been gassing their people all along. Is it that the U.S. administration, A, didn't know about that? Well, I knew about it, and I'm sure their resources from the CIA are a lot better than, than OGN News resources. Or is it B, that they knew and they chose to ignore it because it went along with their foreign policy? Where is the purity of intention to help the Syrian people? So as long as we're going to have countries like America or Britain or whoever else wants to get involved, their intentions are to help themselves. You're not going to see good results on the ground, generally speaking. So I just want to ask you about this. On the ground, amongst the Syrian people, what's the feeling now? Because this war has been, and I remember... We're talking like four years ago, people were saying it would be over in a summer, that the Assad regime was about to fall. And then it just seems to have dragged on and dragged on and dragged on. And we are constantly, those of us that watch it and, and try and keep up with what's going on, are constantly in, in shock and in tears at the death toll and the pain and suffering caused to the people. What's their take on what's going on now? And where are the Syrian people at right now? Well, let's talk about two types of Syrian people. You have Syrian people, which are non-combatants, which are the ones like um, in Khan Sheikhoun and the, the ones that go about their daily lives. And you also have the Syrians, which are fighting for their independence. They're actively engaging Bashar al-Assad for their independence. So l- let's talk about the two types. Which one do you want to talk about first? Well, let's start off with the non-combatants first. Well, a lot of the non-combatants, their feeling basically is... Of course, the intervention was a nice idea, but there needs to be more if there's going to be any changes on the ground. Sending a message, I mean, after, you know, upwards to a million people have been killed, they need more than somebody to send a message. That message should have been sent in 2012, this is 2017. This is what a lot of them are feeling and saying. So they would say that there's going to be something else to go along with it, then great. But if there's not going to be anything to go along with it, then Exit is just going to continue to take his frustrations out on the rest of the population. As he did, he bombed Khan Sheikhoun again just yesterday. So, you know, where was the effectiveness of the airstrike? It's been a long war. Every household has suffered, and they would like to see an end to that suffering. Now, when we're going to talk about the Syrians that have chosen to fight the government, their take is a bit different. 
They are not interested in American intervention. They don't see any good in American intervention because America is looking to serve its own interests and not to serve the interests of the Syrian people or the goals of the revolution. Now, people have got to understand something, and this is an extremely important point. This revolution is an Islamic revolution, and anyone who is going to tell you other than that, they are either not informed or they're trying to fool you. This is an Islamic revolution. The bulk of the rebel forces are fighting for some form of Islamic governance. Of course, I'm excluding ISIS out of that equation because I do not view them to be an Islamic group. But the groups which are controlling major territory, they are fighting for form of Islamic governance. We've seen this narrative popping up in the West, actually, and Nigel Farage made this point today, that as bad as Bashar al-Assad is, at least he's secular, as if that's some sort of redeeming quality to the brutality that he's meted out amongst his people. What's your take on that? What's your take on the uh, claims and the position that this revolution, because of its Islamic nature, is somehow therefore threatening and almost equal to ISIS in some regards? Firstly, and you know, in terms of his you know appalling and reprehensible comments, it just serves to highlight one thing. You see, this idea of democracy and stuff like that, using their terminology, it's not real. Because the people of Gaza chose Hamas to be their leaders. And we saw what got them uh, a blockade that is supported by the international community. So the issue is not what the people want, and I'm, and I'm going to the assumption that, uh, you know, what they're saying about democratic change is, um, you know, is, is, is a right of the people. It's not for real, because what happened to the people of Gaza? Why did they get besieged when they chose their leaders in a democratic election? Where was the international community to back them? So what does that mean here? Basically, the people What's being said is that if the people want Islam, you can't have it. Let me say this again. The, the West doesn't care whether you want it democratically or you want it in any other way. If you want Islam, then we're going to fight you and you're going to have a major problem. People have to wake up and realize, okay, if that's the way that you feel, then the lines are drawn because it's, and it should be made clear. It shouldn't be made clear that, okay, well, if you want Islam, that means that there's a foreign hand in there. 90% of the fighters here are Syrian. And the ones who are calling for Islam are Syrian. And yes, you do have foreign fighters um, which are here, but they are the extreme minority. They are not even 50%, 40%, or 20% of the fighters. 90% of the fighters, or more than that, are Syrians. But the West wants to look in the other direction because that doesn't fit their narrative. Their narrative is that some foreign elements came and are trying to sell the idea of Islamic law to the Syrians. Well, that's just not the case. It's not reality. It's not for real. So these types of comments, 
it just highlights the hypocritic nature that we're seeing from Western governments. And I think that a lot of the fighters which are here in Syria have washed their hands of any ideas that some Western cavalry is coming over the hill. Actually, they don't want the Western cavalry coming over the hill. They feel that this is their country, this is their land, and they're going to fight for what they want and not what the West might quote-unquote allow them to have. Thank you for the really insightful points on, on what's going mm-hmm. on on the ground. People get a very, they have a knee-jerk reaction as soon as they hear any sort of term about Islamic governance or Islamic state. And obviously their mind goes instantly to the sorts of instances that we saw under the Taliban or under ISIS and the sorts of things that they're committing. When you talk about they want Islamic governance, is that what you mean? Is that what you're talking about? Or what does it look like to them? What do they mean when they talk about Islamic governance as opposed to perhaps what we've been shown in the West and in the media about this topic? Islamic governance is going to vary from one group to another. But if we're going to exclude the wild interpretation of ISIS, because, I mean, that's just a total different strand, you know, that's just something totally different. But if we're going to talk about the mainstream groups which are fighting here in general, the interpretation of Islam doesn't really differ all that much how they may go about doing it. They sit in a room and they squabble about this or they squabble about that. But it it doesn't vary all that much. One thing that a lot of people in the West particularly have tried to focus on is the issue of hudud, the issue of Islamic punishments and things of this nature. I think that even a lot of Muslims should realize that out of the thousands of verses which are in the Quran, I think something around 6,000 verses, approximately six of them actually talk about prescribed punishments. The focus of the media on these prescribed punishments, I would probably say is a bit disingenuous. Why is that? Because if you want to cover a story and you bypass the majority of the story and focus on the small things which are happening and make them significantly larger than they actually are, that's irresponsible reporting. That's scaremongering. That is basically going for TV and radio ratings. Now, that doesn't do the people of the UK, the people of America, any real justice or any real favors Because when you can give them authentic, well-rounded information, then they have the information to make an intelligent decision. Hey, we want to vote for political leaders that support what these people are doing. Or, hey, we want to vote for political leaders that don't support what these people are doing. But uh, I remember when, you know, some of my focus was on bringing some of the stories which are here to Western media, I remember how, how it was when, when I would have these, these different conversations with different media outlets. I was doing a story about one young man, and uh, I was in contact with one major Western media source. And they said, hey, we want to do a story about uh, so-and-so. I said, okay, great, let's do that. I went, I filmed, I investigated the story, went through it. And when I I had the discussion with them, they said, okay. They said, is he Al-Qaeda? I said, "Uh, no, he's not. They said, okay. 
does he live in Al-Qaeda territory? I said, no, he doesn't. They said, hmm, does he have ideas like Al-Qaeda? I said, no. And they must have, they asked me so many questions trying to pin an Al-Qaeda footprint to this young man, which I love this young man. I mean, why would you want to ascribe that to him? And the reason for that is that if you can ascribe Al-Qaeda to this young man, you've got yourself a story that's going to get yourself some ratings. But the fact of the matter is that this young man came here because he saw the suffering of the Syrian people, and he saw that this was the right thing to do. Ah, some of the viewers would say, ah, that's boring. I don't want to watch. I'm going to watch something else. So we have to understand that, you know, the, the reporting that is done by Western media sources is very, very, very biased. And I, I think that it, it's a contributive factor towards, you know, the, the, the bloodshed that we're seeing between the, the different peoples. That's a nice kind of segue into our final topic. So one of the things that On The Ground News has always tried to do is to try and show the truth about what's going on there. And because of that, you have had some instances where you've been bombed. Your office was bombed a while ago. I think it was a drone strike that you had. Uh, and most recently, you've been put on a kill list. So the question is, what's that one about? Well, firstly, two of our offices were bombed. One of our offices was bombed when Aleppo and a grad rock attack. And another office was bombed when we were um, in Idlib. Actually, that office was bombed one, two times um, that office was bombed. Um, so we realize that we ruffle some feathers at On the Ground News because we're not a part of any group, although people try to label us to be a part of this group or a part of that group because it helps them to convince the people, hey, you don't have to listen to these people. But on the ground news is not a part of any group, takes money from no group. And sometimes we report things that ruffle group heads. And that goes for all of the different groups. So that makes people unhappy sometimes. But the interesting thing is that we're able to have different conversations with the various groups that are here when we report something that maybe they don't like. We'll sit and we'll argue and we'll fight about it and then we'll finish the tea and then we will all go about our business. Some people may say, well, maybe it's real groups that are bombing your offices. Well, they don't have any planes, you see. You know, they don't have any planes to launch these types of attacks. Mm -hmm. So we have been targeted uh, quite a few times we do our best to take our precautions, you know, and I'm, I've only mentioned the attacks on the office, but um, we've been targeted, I would say, about nine times in general, where our cars were destroyed, our equipment was destroyed, and so it's a bumpy ride here. But the reality has to set in. I'm not convinced that there has to be this clash of civilizations, that Muslims and Christians uh, have to fight I'm not convinced of that. I don't think that that's something that has to happen. I think that people have got to sit back and say, hey, wait a minute. Let's look at this thing for what it is. And then we can start to make our own determinations instead of simply carrying the narrative of our government. And many of those government representatives wouldn't know the difference between a practicing Muslim and a Sikh. 
And that's the reality of it. But when we report certain things that don't fit that narrative, then that makes people unhappy. And sometimes, you know, they'll come after you and, you know, they'll try to do bad things. But, you know, we didn't come here to be afraid of anybody, even though, you know, I'm, I am afraid of somebody blowing you know, little pieces of me off that I might be needing. But we just have to keep on going. I mean, th- that's the commitment that we made. And we're going to try to stick with that. How is it that you've managed to find yourself in a position where both ISIS and potentially America and Russia, all sides of it seem to not like you very much? How's that happened? Well, ISIS doesn't like me because we worked very hard to help the people to see the true nature of ISIS because I know ISIS, I know their members, I know them personally, I've sat with them, discussed with them, so I knew their nature when many people were just were cheering that, hey, look, hey, they're taking territory, so this is a good thing and all, and I'm like, well, look, this is not a good thing because these people are going to, um, you know, they're going to turn their evil on you. So I can't say that I'm the smartest person in the world, or even if I'm in the top (laughs) percentage, but I can say that I got the ISIS thing right from the start. So they're not happy. The Russians are not happy because we covered a lot of the bombings that they did, and we exposed their killing of the aid workers. We exposed the fact that use pictures that they say the rebels bombed the territory in western Aleppo, but it was really the bombings that they carried out in eastern Aleppo, and we explained and made all of these things clear. So they're not happy with me. The U.S. is not happy because of the 56 people that they killed in Gina, Syria, where they tried to say was an al-Qaeda gathering, which was actually a Tablighi Jama'a gathering, which they've been having at the same place for the past four years. But the way the U.S. sees this is that they are bearded men and they have guns. They must be al-Qaeda. That's the way that they think. But when we went there, they tried to say didn't hit the mosque. They did hit the mosque, and I filmed that. They tried to say a lot of things. We even showed how they bombed the people as they were running out of the mosque. So when we were able to do all those things, and we had the footage from it and narrated it in a way that I didn't see other people doing, that doesn't mean that we're the greatest, but I think that we got that story right and other stories. So being that OGN doesn't carry the Russian narrative, the American narrative, the ISIS narrative, and we're just trying to help the people to see what this situation is for what it is, that makes people unhappy. And and when people are unhappy in a war zone, they come after you sometimes. You know, so, you know, that's that's how it goes. Can you fill us in on sort of the legal parts of your case? Because you've taken a case out about this kill list. How did you find out you were on one and, and what action are you taking about it? Well, firstly, we have uh, opened uh, a litigation suit against the Trump administration for placing uh, myself and Ahmed Zaydan on a kill list. Now, this didn't start with the Trump administration. That's because this is the current administration that's there, but it started during the Obama administration. Mm. So a lot of people think because Donald Trump is an outwardly piggish type person, and Barack Obama wore a nice suit and had some smooth things to say that they were really all that different. Well, they're really not. 
because the American machine is much bigger than the man who sits at the helm of it. But that's another story. As for the litigation suit that myself and Al Jazeera journalist Ahmed Zaydan filed in court about two weeks ago, we are charging them with placing us on a kill list, and we are going to be pushing forward with that. The drone strike, which took place last summer on myself, it was a textbook hit. Everything was perfect. I was sitting in the car, and the strike hit the car. The car flew up in the air, landed on its side, facing in the opposite direction. There was no reason that I should have survived, except that that was the color of Allah. And the reality of the situation is that I, there's no way I should have walked away from that. The entire front part of the car was blasted off. Now, the United States are, um, uh, are known to have had weaponized drones in that area. We heard the drones because we were filming for approximately half an hour outdoors. So there's no way that they didn't know who was there. They had to have known. We heard the drone over us for a full half hour. Well, I didn't, I mean, I, you know, I, didn't, I wasn't bothered by that. I mean, it was there, it was annoying. But the fact of the matter is that I had the camera out and we were filming. So they knew who was there. And, you know, I don't have any doubt about that. So we opened this, this uh, litigation suit. Um, and in addition to that, uh, there are people in Turkey. I'm not, I cannot say who they are, but they informed me also. This is a separate source, a source that we vetted and we know that they have the information or they, I would say that they have the, the contacts to have this information because they don't see that journalism is a crime. And they uh, explained that my name is at the Injilic Air Base, which is the air base in southern Turkey, which launches, um, which is the staging ground for drone attacks inside of Syria. So, you know, we, that along with the case, we raise our voices. We help the people to look and see and understand what the government is doing. Um, but at the same time, I'm not going to be hiding in anybody's cave. I'm not going to be crawling in anybody's rock. I'm going to keep on doing what I'm doing because I'm not going to allow them to silence this voice, which may be needed. And I'm not saying my voice is needed. But I feel this voice reporting from on the ground is needed. And I'm here right now. And the door is open for other journalists if they would like to come. SubhanAllah. Oh, I think, fortunately, we're running out of time. Is there uh, anything else, Bilal, that you want to add that you think is important to add to this, this discussion or anything that you want our listeners to know? I think that the listeners need to, after they finish listening to this, I think that they need to have a discussion with whoever's listening with them or have a discussion with themselves and ask themselves a question. What can I do for Syria? Okay, now sending baby milk and powder and stuff like that, that's a nice idea. But I think that the Syrian people and this, the Syrian people need more than that. They need people who are in the West to become educated, to become politically active, and to start asking their government officials hard questions. What are we doing exactly? 
are we doing anything for these people? And do not allow people to say that, look, if you're going to campaign for helping the Syrian people, then we're going to say that there's an Al-Qaeda connection there. And next thing you know, your house is going to be raided and your assets are going to be frozen. Do not allow these people to make you afraid. You see, everybody has to stand up. I have to, I have to uh, dodge bombs and assassins here. You know, I'm, I, I've got a gunshot wound to my hand, gunshot wound to my leg. I've had shrapnel, and I've had a dislocated arm <laughs> fighting off attackers. That's my fight. People back in the West, you have your fight. Engage your leadership. You want my vote? You're going to have to make, answer some, some tough questions. I want to see the Muslims back there carrying that banner. I think that that's what's going to be of use to the Muslim people, non-Muslim people, the people in here in the Middle East, and the people that are sitting there um, right in the UK. So I think that that's what I would like to, uh, to say to the people. I think that's something really poignant there for, for all of our listeners. No one's threatening us with gunshots. No one's threatening our lives in that way. And if we really still can't stand up and, and speak out on these issues, then uh, then really what has our Iman done for us if it won't let us speak out for the oppressed and help those who are being massacred hand over fist? Bilal, I really, from the bottom of my heart, want to thank you for taking the time to come on our podcast, uh, taking the time to tell us about what's going on out there and inform us of your situation and, and of the situation of the, the Syrian people. I want to say to our audience, make sure you check out On The Ground News. They get to the real crux of the issue, and you're going to find out things that you just don't hear in the other media 99% of the time. Sadly, the truth of the matter is that most of the time now, Syria is kind of background news. It may flash up every now and again with when the killings in Aleppo spike or when the, there's a sarin attack. But this is, and it has been going on day after day for years now. And we need to keep ourselves informed. And although it can be very, very hard to look at these images, we need to be engaged and we need to be active on this issue because this is a critical, critical time. Nadim? Um, I can't add any more to that. Just echo you said, Jazakallah khairan, Bilal, for taking the time out to, to join us today. And as always, follow the, the podcast, subscribe and share it. This is such an important topic. Like, follow, subscribe, OGN. You, I think Bilal, OGN have Twitter and Facebook as far as I'm aware. Is there anything else that people can follow? Yeah, they can uh, check out our website, OGN.news. Um, we also have uh, uh, an app now, OGN. It's on the Play Store and also the uh, on iTunes. And um, they can follow me, Bilal Kareem, on Twitter. And you can also follow OGN News on Twitter as well. Fantastic. Jazakallah khairan to you and to Kareem. Jazakallah for our listeners. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum assalam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.